Well, as Father Paul has said, and I'm sure you've now figured out, I am not Archbishop Foley Beach. And I'm just as disappointed as you that he's not able to share a word with us this morning. I was telling the clergy, it kind of feels like you think you're going to a Beatles concert, and instead you show up and there's a band with guys wearing wigs and they call themselves A Hard Day's Night. It's not quite the same thing. (laughs) Aside from both being clergy and being from Georgia, I'm afraid that's where the commonalities end between me and Archbishop Beach. But uh, speaking of Georgia, as Father Paul has mentioned, uh, my family and I are now three weeks away from our big transition as we prepare to move home and to take up a new ministry in Atlanta. And I was there this week. I was there for just 24 hours, finalizing a few details of our move and getting ready for that transition. Uh, And if you watch the news at all this week, you will have seen that I was there for a rather eventful 24 hours in Atlanta. Uh, I was driving Thursday evening and received a call and someone very uh, concerned to make sure I'd made it home and had no clue what they were talking about until uh, I made it home and checked the news and uh, realized, and many of you will have seen this, that uh, there was a fire on I-85 which caused one of the bridges to explode and collapse, uh, taking out, I heard estimates anywhere uh, from 250 to 400,000 cars that go over this bridge every single day. Uh, Needless to say, it is a major disruption to travel on the uh, southeastern highways. Um, As I woke up Friday morning, I had the realization that this one bridge being out has affected virtually everyone in this city in one way or another. And as only clergy can do, when I woke up, my thought was, this is a great spiritual analogy. (laughs) I think most people waking up thought, this is a massive headache. But I thought this is a great picture of the spiritual life because what we have in that bridge collapsing is all of these people whose rhythms are thrown off and they're being forced to slow down. Atlanta is just like Dallas in the sense that we frantically rush our way through lives, rush our way from one place to another, and now for several months they're estimating people driving in Atlanta will be forced to slow down and find this new rhythm of life. And I think in some ways we can think of Lent as a season where we're forced to slow down. But we push against it, don't we? I feel in my own spiritual life like Lent has flown by And I look at the calendar and find it hard to believe that Easter is nearly upon us. You may feel the same way. And I want to make sure, part of what we want to look at today is to make sure we are in fact ready for Easter. If you were here Ash Wednesday, that was part of the message we shared, which is Lent is a way to make sure we are made as a people ready to greet the Lord Jesus at Easter. And for some of us, we may have stumbled our way through or, or had a false launch in this Lenten season. And so what I want us to do is slow down and take the rest of the time we have left and make sure we are in fact made ready for Easter. And the way we do that today is by looking at John chapter 11, where we join Jesus with some of his closest friends. If you want to follow along, you can do so in your pew Bible on page 897. John 11 on page 897. 
John 11 is a famous passage, one of the most famous, especially if you've ever attended a funeral or especially an Anglican funeral service. Often the first words of the service as it begins come from John 11. I am resurrection and I am life, says the Lord. Or verse 25, whoever believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. These are words of great hope. They are words that point us to the glory of resurrection life. But as we're now in the middle of Lent, we want to focus on the first 20 some odd verses because our temptation is always to look for the glory and the joy of resurrection and ignore everything that leads up to it. And in this passage, what leads up to the resurrection of Lazarus is heartbreak and confusion and anxiety and pain and suffering. And so for us, walking this road in the wilderness with Jesus, that's where we'll focus, these first 16 verses. And so to do so, just three observations I want to make from these verses. The first is this. Being loved by Jesus does not mean that we are exempt from pain and suffering. Being loved by Jesus does not mean that you and I get a pass on pain or suffering. Look at verse 3 and 4. The sisters send to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is significant for us. We need to hear this because we, I think, by default, assume that if we are suffering or someone we love is going through suffering, we must have done something wrong. I think especially for us as Americans, because we as Americans or people living in American culture are told to pursue your own version of happiness, whatever that may be. Pursue your own definition of meaning and purpose and identity, and there you will find a significant and meaningful life. If you were in the Foundations class on Wednesday night, I had this quote that I think in just about two sentences sums up as best I've ever encountered this default cultural DNA that's hardwired into us, whether we realize it or not. It's famous words from Justice Kennedy from the 1992 Planned Parenthood versus Casey court case. Many of you will recognize these words. He said this, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. I don't say that to make a political statement. I say it to highlight for us that that, if this is the uh, foundational assumption that we have, if this is our common collective psyche, when it comes to pain and to suffering, we will always think we've made a miscalculation because if liberty is our ability to define for ourselves whatever we want in life, no one would ever choose for themselves trial or suffering or pain. And so if we have it, we think I must have done something wrong. Where did I make a misstep and how do I fix it? And while this is common for us in American culture, it's by no means uniquely American. This has for centuries been something Christians have talked about. One of the great fathers of the faith in the early church was a man named St. John Chrysostom. 
And he said this, he said, many are offended when they see any of those who are pleasing to God suffering anything terrible. There are those, for instance, who have fallen ill or who have become impoverished or have had to endure some other tragedy. Those who are offended by this do not know that those who are especially dear to God have it as their lot to endure such things, as we see in the case of Lazarus, who is also one of the friends of Christ, but was also sick. Lazarus, a friend of Christ, yet also sick. St. John points out for us this foundational truth that somehow in the mystery of God's kingdom, those who suffer, those who go through trial in this life, It is not because they've made a misstep or done something wrong, but actually, in fact, in that suffering, not in spite of it, they are near to Jesus. They are close to God because we serve a God who has himself endured pain and endured suffering. And that's my second point. God is with you in pain and in suffering. God is with us in our pain. If we'd read this far in verse 21, you would have seen this. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Because Lazarus dies in Martha's estimation, Jesus was entirely, therefore, absent. Now, of course, in the history of the story, she's right. Jesus was not physically present, but in no way can we say Jesus had let the the situation get out of his hands or out of control. No, Jesus says this will be used for God's glory. And in fact, when the news comes to Jesus, he waits two days before he goes to do something about it. If someone that you loved, a family member or a dear friend, you heard word that they were ill, It wouldn't have been from a messenger on foot. You'd probably get a phone call or a text. But if you heard it, immediately you or I would drop everything and go to their side. Jesus, who loved Lazarus, hears this news and says, thank you very much, and goes about his business for two days. That's confusing to us, isn't it? It's confusing to us. And I think it shows Jesus doesn't always respond the way we want him to or anticipate that he will act. Doesn't mean that he has abandoned a situation, does not mean that he is not in control, but it shows us God does not always answer our prayers the way we'd like him to or the way we anticipate that he will. But God working in the mystery of his own providence and his own knowledge does not mean he has therefore abandoned us or abandoned a situation, especially in times of trial and suffering. In Lent, as we've said for the last few weeks, in Lent we journey with Jesus through the wilderness. It's a desolate season and a desolate place and we walk towards Palm Sunday. We join Jesus in the upper room on Monday, Thursday. We climb the hill on Good Friday, all of this leading to Easter Sunday, to the glory of the empty tomb. But you can't separate those out, and everything that leads up to the tomb can't be separated from the glory of resurrection itself. And in fact, somehow the two go together. What Jesus endures in his trial and in his suffering is in fact a part of the resurrection story. 
The path of pain and suffering is a well-trodden path, and it's a path that Jesus himself walked. And if we are meant to be people made into his likeness, made into his image, following him where he leads, we should not be surprised if there are seasons of life in which we follow him on this road of pain and suffering. The last point is this. God uses pain to bring about his ultimate end. God uses pain to bring about his ultimate end. It's a question of trust. Are we willing to trust God's ability to bring about good ends from the situations of our life, even if we are confused and anxious and see no way through them? Now, please hear me on this. Saying God can bring good out of our suffering does not trivialize or is not meant to diminish the reality of your pain, of our pain. I know there are people here this very morning who in their own bodies are suffering unspeakable pain and illness, emotional brokenness, and if not you, of someone you love dearly, and their pain is so present to you, it's as though you were suffering it yourself. I don't mean to trivialize that. We as Christians shouldn't just smile and put on a happy face and pretend that doesn't exist. I'm not telling you to go to the Christian bookstore and buy a card with a scripture on it and say, here, everything's gonna be great. Jesus came to heal us of that which is broken. And sin and death and suffering and brokenness is not life as it's meant to be. We can never say that. But we also look to Jesus and say, he did not ignore the brokenness of life in order to heal us and make us whole but he went right through it. This is what you see in the life of Jesus. Not just in his death, but in his ministry. Anytime there's brokenness. Have you noticed how many times in Jesus' life he finds himself around people who are sick? Around people who are on the outskirts and the fringes of society. It's not by accident. It's because he's going to the things in our society and in our world that are broken and saying, that is what I've come to heal. That is what I've come to make well. One of the great Anglican bishops and missionaries of the last century is Bishop Leslie Newbegin. And in his sermon on John 11, he says this, perhaps one may dare to only say this, that in the immediate presence of death and of the hopeless unbelief of his friends in the face of death, Jesus was facing the power which he had come to destroy. A power which is met by the wrath of him who is the author of life, but which could only be cast out when the author of life took the whole power of death upon himself. If you take nothing else away, here's one thing I'd love for you to hear today. When you look at Lazarus, remember this. Lazarus was not led to death. Lazarus was led through death. Sometimes we ignore prepositions. We ignore small words and think they don't matter. It's not the case here. There's a huge difference in being led to death and being led through death. One, to be led to death is to say, this is the end. This is the final destination. There's nothing after this. This is what you are led to. It all stops here. It's a very different thing to say, you will through death find life. You can't go around it but through it, you will encounter life. 
That's what we see in the death and resurrection of Lazarus. It's what we see in Jesus. This story is a foretaste of what's to come in Jesus' own death and resurrection. And for us who follow him, it is the same for us as well. Last time I checked, the human mortality rate throughout history stands right around 100%. All of us will die. Even when we pray for healing and God in his kindness gives us relief and gives us a taste of his coming kingdom, we will still get sick again. One day, all of us will die. And I think we look to this story of Lazarus and I find incredible hope in being reminded that all of us are not being led to death, but we will be led through death. Jesus, I think, points us in this direction in this passage when he speaks of Lazarus as one who has fallen asleep. One who has fallen asleep. It's a great image that for me captures the difference in to death versus through death. Lazarus has not died as an end, but is simply asleep. In Christian tradition, often when saints die, those who are loved by the Lord, they are said to be asleep with the Lord, having fallen asleep. It's an Old Testament image as well. Daniel 12 has this image, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We are not being led to death, but even in our pain and brokenness, God takes that and says, through this, I will birth my life in you. Through this, my light will shine even in the darkness, as real as that pain may be. So as we wrap up, how do we respond? How do we respond? I think Jesus today is asking us a direct question, and he's saying, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust that what I'm saying is actually true, not just in a nice, sentimental way, but actually true for your life? Because the temptation I know will be to say, oh yes, Father Tripp, that sounds great, but you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how deep the pain is and how confusing my situation is where I see no way that good can come out of this. Jesus is saying, do you trust me? You today trust that even if you don't see a way through, even if you are crippled by anxiety and fear, that through this, somehow life will come. Through this, God will be glorified and bring about good for you. I'll wrap up with one more word from one of the great fathers of the church, St. Athanasius, who gave a sermon on John 11 and in his own sermon spoke in the first person, giving voice to what the Lord might say to us today. So hear these words of hope and encouragement from St. Athanasius as we wrap up. I am the voice of life that wakens the dead. I am the good odor that takes away the foul odor. I am the voice of joy that takes away sorrow and grief. I am the comfort of those who are in grief. Those who belong to me are given joy by me. I am the joy of the world. I gladden all my friends and rejoice with them. I am the bread of life. Jesus himself wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. But the same Jesus who wept at the grave is the same Jesus who spoke to him and said, come out and come to life. And it's the same Jesus 
who conquered over sin and death and in whom we trust today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.